Welcome to the C Word, the Conservatives podcast. Today we're talking about testing new materials. I'm Jenna Mathiasson, an objects conservator based in Carmarthenshire. Hi, I'm Chloe Rumsey, an objects conservator based in Greater Manchester. Welcome to the show, everyone. Today we're talking about materials and we've got a special guest host with us. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hello, my name is Anna Pajajski. Uh, I'm a material scientist and science writer and podcaster. Welcome, fellow podcaster. <laughs> Thanks very much. Tell us everything about your podcast. So my podcast is called Handmade. It was called Real Talk because it's about materials. Love it. <laughs> but the, <laughs> the pun got a bit old after a while. <laughs> and I've got a book coming out next year called Handmade. So I decided to like align all of the things together. So that, yeah, so now everything is called handmade that I do. The general premise of it is that, um, so my background is in material science. That's what I studied at uni. That's what I did PhDs and postdocs in. And a few years ago, I realised that although I know a lot about, you know, the graphs of materials and the formulae and like all of the scientific and mathematical concepts behind materials, there's a lot of things I don't actually know about materials that other people do, like how you throw a pot on a potter's wheel or what does mm. a piece of steel glowing at 800 degrees look like? And the people that do know those things are the craftspeople. They're the blacksmiths and the potters and the bakers and the conservators. <laughs> to make it topical and so I decided to interview those people on my podcast that is a great concept and I love it yeah brilliant thanks it kind of throws me back into like learning how to become a conservator because it was kind of a huge deal to get to know materials and start learning about them oh yeah so much and you know because we're generalists Chloe and I are object conservators Mm. so we're the GP of the (laughs) material world (laughs) (laughs) I love it It's a wild ride to try to learn as much as you can about as many materials as you can, like enough to try to diagnose the problems and and see what you can do. And oh, it's it's a it's a beautiful and insane world. And I love it. I think it's also quite common for conservators to sort of know things in a vague sense. And then if they were told, so exactly why does this work? They'll go, oh, I used to know this, but um, I know that it has these properties and this, you know, type is a bit more gooier than this type. And they kind of drop the formal language. And I don't know if that's how you feel as well, Jenny. (laughs) I mean, I think what you're describing is so I find that so much in my work as well, because I think, you know, um, in, in kind of formal science education, you're encouraged to get narrower and narrower and narrower. Um, Mm. And then, you know, by the time you're doing research, you're like the world expert on the nichest thing ever. Yes. (laughs) And then, yeah, people will ask you about something that's totally not about what you do, but you did learn about it at a lecture like 10 years ago. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) And it's so funny because I, I too feel a bit like a GP of materials now in the sense that so I did all of my like really niche studying and now I'm more of a materials generalist because of all the kind of popular science work that I do and talking to members of the public like they want to ask me about plastics and then they want to ask me about toilets and then they want to ask me about their (laughs) iPhone and like (laughs) you know you have to jump between all these different topics and actually I found that that's such a nicer realm to inhabit is the sort of generalist as opposed to something really really niche. So I have specialized i'm trained objects but i've specialized in textiles but i still consider myself an objects conservator because quite a lot of the sort of you know specialized surgeon type things i still if i was unsure i'd still turn to a a textiles conservator and say just to check is this right that kind of thing Mm. um but i i don't really believe in specialisms (laughs) controversial i do believe obviously obviously i believe in specialisms but you know you even textiles you've almost always got a non-textile element attached to them because you very rarely mm. have something that's just a bit cloth you know and the, even then there's dyes or staining or something that's you know right. associated with another type of specialism mm. you know painted textiles even if you were a specialist in metals, then you've got, what would you do with a sword? You've got the metal sword and then you've got le- the leather hilt and you've got the probable inlays and then, you know, 
No, that's true. That's true. Some specialisms are more broad than others. So it yeah. can be, um, we got uh, conservatives who specialize in inorganic materials or organic materials. And, you know, obviously those are broader categories and that sort of thing. And, you know, if you meet a paintings conservator, they can work on a huge variety of surfaces and paint types and all sorts of stuff right so even you know within the specialisms there's a huge range of stuff going on uh so please don't think that i'm dissing you people <laughs> it's about ethos as well though isn't it because we to sort of set the scene of the uh, conservation community i guess approaching say a painting as an objects conservator would be very different to approaching it as a paintings conservator and you you know Depending on whether it's level of training or just kind of what you're expecting of the object, you can approach something very differently and approach the materials that you use very differently. Yeah. And today we are trying to think about the kind of materials that we use to kind of, let's say, treat our patients. Uh, what no. How we, <laughs> how we end up using them to stabilize or repair or, you know, in some way intervene with the decay of an object, uh, for example. So again, conservators use so many different things. And today we kind of wanted to explore, well, what what about when you're doing something new? Because this came up for you, Chloe, didn't it? Not to like do the reveal early, uh, <laughs> because we've got a segment a bit later, which we're going to talk about. But out of the two of us, you're probably the one who tries new stuff more. Well, I think pr- that may be. Because I, I mean, you, I'd say, probably work with a greater surprising range of different types of objects. You can say weird. <laughs> you work with weird objects. Well, I think because of I've most recently in the last three years gone through or co- am coming through a specialism, I've learned an awful lot and I've learned a lot about um, how to use the materials I was already familiar with in objects conservation and how to use them really quite differently in textiles conservation or it sort of expanded my um, specialist use of different materials I'd say a lot of it actually has been adhesives to be honest Um, when you said Jenny think about the materials that you use I was thinking oh is it just I think it's just threads and goopy polymers is that it <laughs> is that what, I mean? <laughs> like, what else is i mean of course it's lots of other things and goopy polymers is a terrible phrase to use but i think i've used i'll take consolidants as an example i use them very differently now than i would when i was working on objects yeah just an example I mean, we've already brought up adhesives and adhesives are like a conservator's best friend sometimes. <laughs> yes. um, we used to joke that paper conservators are very fond of their pastes. But that, <laughs> I think that's actually true of every conservation. I love a paste, man. I love it. This is actually one of my questions that I had for you about conservation. I don't even really know what the right terminology here. When you're applying a fix to something, let's say you're if you're sticking one bit back together with another bit, do you think about future conservators coming along and saying, oh yeah, I recognise what they've done there. They've used that goop and I can see why they've done that and so I know how to reverse it. Or are you really trying to, even though you want it to be reversible, are you really trying to like apply something that's going to last? Kind of both. I mean, you'd be surprised how much we worry about what future conservators will think of what we do. (laughs) (laughs) The anxiety is real. We're also absolutely obsessed with documentation. So we love writing things down and love saying what what we do with things. And that's because often people haven't done that for us. And that Mm. can be a real Mm. pain. Because we probably spend quite a lot of hours actually undoing what someone else has done before us. And, and then trying to redo it. Yeah, so you're like a forensic scientist as well as, you know, having to learn all about kind of the history as well, right? Because if you know when a fix was done, then you'll be able to guess what materials they used and use that as a clue, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, sometimes it doesn't help that, um, you know, people have favoured traditional methods. So animal glue, for example, you know, that could Mm. denote that it was done a a long time ago when that was the only thing that was available. Or it could just mean that someone used animal glue because it's what they were used to using. Or that it was a trusted method, for example. Mm. Um, And so sometimes it doesn't help you date it necessarily. Although it is still interesting information. I love finding that sort of stuff out. And sometimes it's, it's more obvious, like, 
look, they used uh, cellulose nitrate. Well, that's only been available since blank. So, you know, that at least narrows it down. Um, mm. But yeah, and I, I love that. I hadn't really thought of it as forensic science. But yeah, you're right. That's so cool. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. I As soon as we started talking about this, I was obviously went through the um, the immediate horror of the idea of doing something that in development future conservators would think what on earth was this person doing now it's ruined you know that's the that's what we aim to avoid at all costs i suppose because we acknowledge that we've come so far um as a discipline that we can see you know ceramics stapled together and people thought that was fine and now that's almost the opposite of what we do I was going to play devil's advocate here and say that I know that you said that we're going to fret about what conservatives think in the future, but I think maybe we shouldn't. As in, yes, worry about it because you want this, whatever you choose, you want it to have a longevity and be sympathetic to the object and reversible, etc., etc. However, I can pretty much guarantee that whatever you do, someone's going to think you were a prick about it. <laughs> because in 200 years, science will have evolved. You know, it, it would just have gotten so far. So it's just going to be the same thing that we're doing now. Where we're looking at something that was done 50 years ago and, you know, say, that was a stupid decision, but it's what they had at the time. You know, they thought they were doing top-notch stuff. And it's the same with us. We thought we were doing top-notch stuff. We can only work with the information we have. And we can't predict the future. So it's one of those things, I think, where we part of what we do is we have to accept that we're probably going to screw something up but we've got to work we're going to just do our best that's that's kind of where it's at but yeah so i think some of what actually trying new things is is letting go of some of that fear because it can be oddly frightening to like try try a new it can be an adhesive or it can be another type of material that we use to repair something or that we use as part of our treatments and it can be scary and that's completely fine but also we don't make any progress if we're not at least a little bit scared. <laughs> so should we talk about how we choose new materials? When we say new, uh, are we going to say new to us as individual practitioners? Or are we going to say new to the sector? Because both are exciting. Mm, I'd be interested to talk to people who make this kind of innovation or take this step, I suppose. And it may well be um, material scientists who work with us that I tend to use materials because I've seen them in a journal article or mm-hmm. I've yep. gone, you know, I've, I've written in, you know, this is the particular problem I've got in conservation disc list. And then somebody said, this is a new thing that's being tested now, for example. Mm. Again, that, that's that's a common common way of finding mm. a material that's new to you. It can be a recommendation from someone else or an article or just something that kind of suggests that this might be a good fit for the problem yeah, that you're having. Yeah, in a conference as well. They're fantastic because mm. they usually come with pictures <laughs> as well. Yes, and that's worth a lot. <laughs> so I have a question about accelerating aging and the test well uh, shall i open it i'll open it up to the general sort of scientific testing of new materials because we've got okay. oddy testing we've got accelerated aging testing all about essentially choosing something that is not going to age particularly fast or not going to suddenly turn you know bright orange and leak acid <laughs> the ways that we tend to accept new materials into our repertoire i suppose uh, is that they go through a battery of tests somewhere, not necessarily in a terribly official capacity sometimes, and, and that's fine. But it can be things like um, uh, audit tests, as you mentioned. Anna, do you have experience with testing materials to define to, to discern their properties? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's a material scientist bread and butter. Yeah. <laughs> One of my favourite tests that I've done in my scientific career was during my PhD. I was working on these so-called hydrogen storage materials so these were solids that contain hydrogen which as you know is usually a gas but the idea was that you have these sort of solid substances and then when you heat them up then they kind of chemically decompose to give off hydrogen and the benefit of that is that the solids can be can contain a lot of hydrogen and be very kind of densely packed with hydrogen whereas when it's a gas it's very the opposite of dense. <laughs> What's the opposite of dense? Light? 
Uh, light and fluffy. <laughs> Disperse. Very undense. <laughs> yeah, disperse is good. So you can't pack much hydrogen gas into your car if you want to power it with hydrogen. Mm. Um, but you can if you store it in as a solid anyway. Oh. The, the question is, how do you get a gas out of a solid if it's like a lump of like dense material. And it turns out that what happens that when, when we heated these materials up, a, a component of them actually melted just before the hydrogen got given off. So what happened was that they kind of softened and then became like a foam as the hydrogen was being bubbled off. And I really wanted to kind of study this in really kind of high detail. So I took my samples off to Diamond Light Source which is a synchrotron in Oxfordshire, and did 4D X-ray tomography. Now, I imagine you used tomography. 4D? Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, time resolved. So it's like a video in three dimensions of what's going on in your material. Wow. And yeah, I imagine you must do tomography, like 3D X-ray scanning of historical objects. Oh, yeah, sometimes. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Uh, if, if, if we get very fancy, we can do that. Yeah, often in partnership with um, universities and that sort yes, of thing. And right. nearly always in association with some pot of funding that has been a, a, um, awarded for that specific task. Yeah, yeah this um, so-called beam time is very expensive. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, but what I did was I, I was able to see these sort of 3D snapshots of my materials um, heating up. So they started as just like a little solid pellet and then over time they became more and more foamy and you could see the hydrogen bubbling out and being given off. And that was really exciting. I really liked that. Wow, that's amazing. That's amazing. So that's quite a high-tech materials test. <laughs> it is, but I do think that we rely as conservation on testing of materials in industry or for industry drill purposes or mm. for other you know purposes that are considered more kind of <laughs> let's face it financially significant than heritage yeah, yeah sure um, <laughs> we rely on this kind of testing in order to kind of get a baseline of what are the properties of this material and is this something that could be used in conservation mm. yeah no absolutely we do uh, but then we do do some testing of our own um, for example, Audi testing. Interesting. Yeah, so it's, it's a rudimentary way of, of testing if something is inert or not uh, in a very specific way. But it, it gives us a kind of a, it, you know, it's, it's like you know, licking your finger and sticking it into the air and going, oh, it's not windy. <laughs> uh, you know, but, but it's, it's, it's what we need sometimes, you know. Um, Can we have a materials scientist explanation of inert or not inert as a material? What's going on when something is not inert? Oh, great question. Well, when I say inert, I would mean that it is not chemically reactive. So you can imagine like a lump of material just sitting around <laughs> for millennia and nothing really happening to it, chemically speaking. I love um, those materials. <laughs> yeah, I bet you do. <laughs> um <laughs> There aren't that many materials that are inert, alas, as I'm sure you found in your work. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so uh, an, a material that isn't inert is one that reacts with its environment in some way. Correct me if I'm wrong, I would expect that usually that would either be oxygen or water. Mm -hmm. Yes. Those tend to be quite, you know, substances that attack most materials over time. And are usually abundant. <laughs> yes. But controllable, which is the... Um sort of premise of quite a lot of pre preventative conservation yes that's true so keeping water out or controlling oxygen yeah yes as a low-tech conservator i am also quite fond of light tests on a windowsill i love seeing how quickly things fade we've talked about testing um scientifically we've talked about using new materials so i've recently heard about a, a, a type of material or a, or a new product I'm going to say actually at a conference textiles conservation conference for coloring fill or support fabrics and I'm going to explain a little bit I'm going to do the introduction now because I recorded this god January in the before times and I recorded it whilst I was doing the thing and I don't actually <laughs> Whilst I was recording, I was saying things like, oh, I hope I've introduced myself because I don't remember what I've said. Um, or I, you know, I hope I explain what I'm talking about because otherwise everyone's confused. And then I sort of forgot 
in my editing to tell Jenny that I was doing this <laughs> and she <laughs> very politely very kindly said I think we should do a little introduction because I essentially don't know what the fuck you're talking about <laughs> oh god that sounds so bad <laughs> that's what you said basically it, it is it is basically what I said that's true <laughs> So basically, I was using the Lascal Sirius watercolor system, which is an acrylic paint system produced by our friends at Lascal. When making up paints for fills or colorants in some way, I'm always thinking, should I? Can I just buy you know commercial acrylics? Acrylics are you know they have a variable reputation, don't they? And even if you were to mix pigment you're still using an acrylic medium and all of that so I was excited about this okay so the object that I was working on um is a large painted banner so it's double-sided right uh silk acrylic painted on both sides so my object had 20 splits in it all over in different different areas of the banner it's double-sided so I couldn't back it with something so what I needed was a double-sided fairly subtle solution um, that was adhesive because I can't stitch into the paint that was subtle on both dark red silk and bright yellow paint. So what I did was dye some silk repeline yellow to match the yellow paint and then I painted over dark red to stain it into the, the correct colour so it didn't look obvious on the red silk. The other layer of complication with this is that you want different adhesives over the two different materials as well because um, you can't you you want something strong like for example a beaver on the paint section to really anchor it but you can't use beaver with silk because it's just too waxy and oily and obvious so you need a different adhesive for that Ooh, so that's okay. what I was doing <laughs> so yeah okay so I see the problem that you were having. All right, well, let's listen and see how it went. Hello. Uh, so I'm in the little lab at my work. I've opened up my box of Lascaux and I've put a squirt of the red, the magenta, the yellow and the ultramarine just on a large watch glass um, with a well of water in the middle and I'm aiming for a kind of wash rather than like a, a you know a proper paint blob because um, I'm dyeing silk crepeline um, coloring silk crepeline so my first tests that I did were too washy there was too I was too kind of cautious with them and I did put too much water in them because there was too much water in them, I think that has caused a kind of separation of the colours again. With a heavier coat on the crepeline, that didn't happen. I've managed to colour the threads without actually getting any pigment in the actual weave structure itself, so it doesn't cover any of the, the spaces between the weave. So my second go, I'm trying to make a red so that it blends in to my silk that I'm going to be covering with this. So I tried, obviously, different, the red and the blue and the yellow together. I tried a bit of magenta and that just made it a bit too, like, a fruity, bright kind of colour for the, the fabric that I've got, the, the object that I've got. In each case, I tried a heavier coat. So this is still mostly water. It's quite a bit more opaque. So as it's dried, I've done lots of little lines on, um, on my crepeline. It's kind of pooled at the edges and become quite concentrated at the edges. Edges. so I think what I'll need to do is paint over the size that I actually need and cut around um, I haven't tried doing different colors yet but I think I'd probably need to wait for each one to dry and then add another color so they didn't bleed together so they've all dried I did try different color mixes and then I tried the one that I thought was the color that I thought was most likely I tried doing a wash of that that weirdly hasn't blended so I wonder if actually I'm just getting a better mix in there but I have found that the heavier coat of paint has been better and when I lay this on I'll take it to my object now taking this to my object now so I can cover it. So I've laid my yellow dyed silk crepeline onto my red silk object base um, to choose the colour and actually even though I tried different weights of paint, different concentrations of paint um, in the water solution that I made, it doesn't actually make a huge amount of difference. You can tell, you can certainly tell which one's the wash and which one's the one I tried to make particularly heavy and that, but they all work really well even just tinting with a small amount of colour and with this colour system 
and works really well. So I'm very impressed actually. I'm actually very pleased with the texture because I've not painted a support like this before. I was actually a bit worried that it would make it stiffer or kind of change the, the physical properties of it in some way. And actually I'm bending it now and sort of folding it and curling it around to see what happens. And it's actually basically not making any difference at all. It's basically like it's the, the paint itself isn't there, which is really good. And we know from using Lascaux adhesives that they are really flexible and they're really um, soft. So yeah, I'm really pleased. Right, so I'm doing my bulk colour to paint in my little shapes that I need to do. I've got my bulk wash, which is thicker, as I just said, so it's a vivid enough colour. I'm finding the technique really difficult, and I don't know that this is a place to complain about that because I th I've never done it before, and it is a method that people use and don't fail at, so I think it's my problem. However, maybe I'm using it too watery still. Um, I'm not sure, but I'm about to do a really big bit, so we'll see. And I'm weighing, so what I'm doing is weighing down my pieces of crepeline. I'm also wondering if the larger pieces of crepeline would have been more stable or less floaty or whatever that's a complaint for another conversation I think so the number one that I did the number one that I painted in I moved it around too much I think or I tried to make it better and it got much much worse so technically I've painted it but it's just it's just a huge mess so um, I'm trying to correct the weave so that the pattern reappears, but I, I'm still lost cause, I think. Anyway, so with my wash, I've got my large wash gla watch glass. What I am finding is that the blue keeps separating out, so I keep having to agitate the whole lot of wash with my brush in order to keep it the correct colour. It's just very watery, so I'm really struggling to get a, get a clean line with my paint. I feel like I'm missing something maybe with this technique. The colours are beautiful though. I think maybe I just need a slightly heavier paint. Slightly less water. I'll try that. Hello, it's day two of um, testing out my Lascal Sirius system, watercolour system. Because um, last night I tried out how thick could I use the paint essentially without making it look like painted fabric but still you know using it as a dye colorant to a support textile but actually still have it be thick enough to cover the kind of gold tint I had left over on my my support so actually I've discovered that I can use quite a heavy not you know not the neat paint as it were, still watered down, but much heavier than I thought. And it would still act like a colorant rather than a, rather than a paint. So it wouldn't cover the weave structure is what I'm saying. So I'm painting it on now as the thicker version of the color, of the color that I'm adding. It's so much more controllable like this. It's not bleeding out. Um, it's not got that capillary action that was going on yesterday. It's actually really nice to work with. I'm still not very good. <laughs> Still not very good at the actual technique, but you know, that's that's not what I'm reviewing here. Yeah, day two is a good day for this technique. Um, it's drying, it's still drying quite a different color, but I think it would just be a case of testing out the color that you need and having a look at how much it changes basically for the color that you're using and for the context that you're using. The thing I'm testing it quite hard to be painting it on a gold silk crepeline on a white, back, white background. It's quite difficult to gauge what color I need and what color I'm getting. Some of these patches I'm using just one coat and some of them I'm using two. Oh no, I've just ruined one. Ah, oh, just used too much. Damn it, now I've got to cut a whole extra piece of crepeline. Yeah, it's not it, just gotta try again. Ugh, what a mess. Thankfully, I've got loads of the correct colour crepeline. And we just won't think about how expensive it is. Right, day um, five or six or whatever. I haven't recorded a couple of the things I've been doing just because I've now gone on to the adhesive stage. So I've moved away from using the Lascaux, but I thought I'd, um, the Lascaux paint colour system. Um, but I thought I'd just start talking about what it is I'm doing and what I found um, in relation to the paint system. So 
not to be a drama drama, but I found the use of this paint in this technique an emotional roller coaster. So at the last recording, I found it much more controllable, but also messed a bit up. And that's probably actually quite accurate to how it seems to be behaving. So I have found it quite tricky. Also, I have noticed that, and this might be a negative, but I'll see how it looks on the actual object. I'm getting the dark edge. So the colors aren't separating out anymore at this thickness that I'm using. So I suppose like a double cream thickness. It's not filling the weave, which is perfect. It's not separating, which is perfect. It is giving quite a good depth of shade, depth of color um, when I place the patch onto the object, but it's drying so that the edges are darker. So there's a sort of gathering of pigment, I imagine. Is it solvent fronts? I am, there's a proper, there'll be a proper word for this, um, but I'm not gonna look it up now. Um, there's a gathering of pigment concentration at the edges of my of my sections of my brush strokes of where the the um, the drying line has occurred. Again, I don't think when I've laid it on the the object, I don't think this is going to make a difference. Um, I don't think it matters, but it has meant that the slightly wobbly edges that I've created with my either unpracticed hand or mistaken technique will probably be more obvious than they might be. So I think it will be when I'm actually um, putting them on the object, I think I'll have to be a bit careful with how I apply them and where I actually match up my edges to the, to the edges of the paint and silk that I'm adding them to. So yeah, next thing that I've done, um, so I've got my patches, I've got the, the red pieces that will be covering the red silk and the yellow pieces that will be covering the yellow paint. I've laid them on with test patches. It looks pretty good. I'm a bit worried that the red is still going to be, it's gonna still be obvious on the red silk, but um, I think I just need to test how, you know, how much I need to cover the red silk and then compare it to patches that I've seen in the past. because. This is obviously as a, as a known technique for the conservation of painted textiles, uh, painted banners in particular, with this um, the problem of the the shearing between the silk and the paint interface. It's going to be visible somewhere, so I just need to have a look at see whether this is more visible than other examples. I've tried washing the acrylic out of the crepeline pieces um, to see how stable it is in there. And it does wash out a tiny bit, so I basically held one half of a patch that failed underwater and sort of agitated it quite firmly with my fingers and then laid it on a piece of blotting paper to see what would happen. It did wash out a bit, but it, the, te the colour did not, obviously it didn't reactivate because it's acrylic, but um, it didn't, none of it bled out into the blotting paper. So I think however much it, you know, I probably could scrub out the colour if I really tried, it's it's not going to move itself into, after getting wet, it's not going to move itself into the object. Um, and I think it would have to get really soaked and there'd have to be like excessive agitation and I can't imagine a storage situation <laughs> that that would occur in, unless they take the banner outside. But anyway, the pigment does not seem to mobilise after wetting. I'm going to talk now about how I feel about it in relationship to the use I'm putting them to. So obviously that includes the sharpness of the line that I've been able to achieve. And at the moment I'll say variable. Um, I've got to do the other side of the banner. So another load of these in the same way. I think I'll probably do a little bit more recording um, when that happens, but for now, generally positive. I, so I've got my yellow silk recap. I've got my yellow silk crepeline with a stencil to where the red is, the red silk that I'm covering, I've painted red, half and half yellow and red. I'm also using a half and half different adhesives method because of the different material surfaces, so paint and silk. I want to use Lascaux on the silk and Beaver on the paint because of the weight of the paint and the strength that it's going to need to hang and possibly be used depending on what the owner of the object decides to do. I don't really have control over that, do I? I can say what I think, but um, it's sort of up to him. So to begin with, I was actually a bit worried because I thought, well, if I've got painted 
good textile on one side and then I'm going to have to put an adhesive over the top of that. I don't know how that's going to respond. I don't want it to interfere. It will depend a little bit on the solvent and everything. But because I'm using Lascaux, actually the Lascaux adhesive are half and half with uh, 498 and 303 at a 15% in water. That's actually just really nicely worked with the Lascaux surface that I've already got on there because not much was actually in place anyway because I've used as little as I can. And then the Lascaux itself has just gone into all of the gaps. The good thing about Lascaux, both the adhesive and the paint, is that it's in water and if you're putting it on top of something like silk crepeline, for example, or a Stabletex, the surface tension of the water really helps to weight it down so it's so much easier. And that really was brought to my attention when I started casting the beaver side of each of my patches. And I think because beaver is in white spirit, it just didn't have that surface tension and I've really struggled with bubbles in areas. So there are small areas on some of my patches that I'm going to have to either redo or locally apply wet extra beaver to stick down my support textile or add in maybe dry film, depending on what I decide. But I'm actually going to I've not had a look at the underneath of one yet, so I've got my finished um, my finished half and half adhesive types and half and half colours, and they're all stuck down onto silicon release paper with my stencils underneath so I can see them. So I'm just going to peel off now and see how it looks. What I want is a nice, smooth, equal amount of adhesive, equal effect, not too much adhesive and not too little. So a nice smooth film basically, and that will go down really nicely. So let's see what I've managed. Oh. Oh. Oh, that's good. Yeah, it's nice. It works. It works. Second go. Yeah. The beaver's a little, maybe in places the beaver's a little bit heavy. That should be all right though. And that bubble is annoying. We'll see how it goes down there. Because I can only spend too much, so much time on this. Yeah, no, it's good. Yay, apart from the bubbles, it's good. Hello, day uh, something with my Lascaux painting color system. So I'm on to the reverse side of my banner. Last week, I had a few patches to redo um, because I twisted the grain of one of them. Another one of them was too small and I forgot to do another one of them. I tried to get those done last week before lunch. Lovely, lovely, quick, do it, that'll get it done. And what did I do? Naturally, I rushed it um, and I've had to re I had to redo it twice, making two different mistakes because I was rushing it. Well, I'll blame myself because it's easier, but um, it was also just quite difficult to colour match properly. I didn't realise it would be so tricky, but then I don't know um, whether I was being a bit blasé, potentially. And the second mistake I made was not casting onto a different surface. So all of the Lascaux adhesive casts that I painted over to the top of paint just picked up all of the paint and it's far too vivid and there's just far too much adhesive stuff on the on the on the silk patches I did. But I only did three and I do have enough of my crepeline. So, you know. So I'm here now um, on the next week. I've cut out all of my crepeline pieces. I have um, drawn grain lines on my pattern pieces so that I could properly line up the grain this time um, on all of them. And I'm now just setting up to paint them. So I'm trying to do it in a bit more of a scientific way. So I'm keeping the consistency of the paint wash the same. What I've been doing is mostly red and then one drop of equal parts blue and yellow. And I started off with one drop. I've done a little test on a spare piece of crepeline, um, far too light. And so I've done another drop of blue, tested that, and then another drop of yellow and tested that. I'm letting, I'm taking the precaution this time to let those dry before I know how much more I need to do. So for now I've got three different small colour patches next to my old patches and the ones that were the right colour but the wrong shape and yeah it's actually looking much better and I feel much more organised about it and much more positive.
So my sample colours are dry and I'm standing over my object now with the crepeline overlay with the coloured sections on it. Um, it does change colour. I think it goes more blue than the more vivid red that I started off with or that I thought I'd started off with but the main thing is the general colour intensity because it's with the water that's in it it saturates the colour. So the one that I thought was my first three colours were too watery um, which I sort of felt at the time so I'm glad that I was right and my last one is too blue so I'm going to add probably well quite a bit again red I'm not going to say amounts just because it won't mean anything to you because it's such a specific treatment I'll add quite a bit more red and do another test let it dry uh, and come back to you but yeah no they look good um, they are still they are still drying there is definitely that sort of concentrated pigment solvent front that we've got but it's still looking pretty good and and it's got to the point where any of the those colors that I use would be all right it's just that maybe I'd find myself doing another coat of the other colors potentially if I felt like it was just the the gold tinge was just too visible but yeah so I've just finished casting I've just finished painting and then casting the patches for the reverse side of my banner um, and that also includes the three patches that I had to redo for the face side of the banner. So all the patches in theory are done now. Um, and I wanted to record a little bit more because I found that I was changing my method a little bit, which is interesting. The color of my paint is still not bob on, which I'm a little bit upset about, but I don't have the time to redo it. It's not that bad at all. And it's just a little bit more blue because of, as I said, the drying a bit more blue thing. Um, so I've got my paint, it's not too bad. It's gonna be a bit different to the other side, but I will have to deal with that. It's only fractionally again. I've cast with my two different adhesives with my Lascaux over the painted section for the silk and the Beaver for the acrylic paint for the unpainted crapoline. Is anyone confused? And the beaver for the unpainted silk crepeline to go over the acrylic. That was a better way to say it. And I found that, so I did have a bit of a concentration of beaver at the interface um, on the, basically the outside of where they painted the beaver onto on the silk crepeline. And that, that ended up as being the interface between where the silk ended and the paint began. So I found myself, whilst I was casting these second load of patches, I found myself actually just going up against the edge of the line a little bit less and allowing it to sort of peter out a bit less. Looking at it now, it has worked. It's, it is less than it was, but it's still not, it's still not perfect. So I think if you wanted perfect line, but I'm not sure what you'd do if you wanted perfect line between the two, I think maybe it just wouldn't be necessary to achieve that. Or in some places I've painted over slightly with the Lascaux onto the silk crepeline, uh, the unpainted silk crepeline so that the interface is actually the concentration of the painted layer is still on the paint rather than on the interface between the paint and the silk. A detail as it hasn't actually structurally in terms of the safety of the object hasn't made a difference because the bond is unbelievably great um, really secure and visually very subtle indeed. So yeah on I go with the next side. First of all thank you so much for recording that because it is genuinely interesting to hear your thought process on this yeah i really liked the series it was really cool found the general process of testing a new material and a new technique at the same time to be very good but also at what stage is this the technique that's the problem or that that's that that's me that's the problem or that's mm. the material that's the problem yeah yeah i can relate i really related to the bit where you were like i just thought i could do this thing before lunch and then and then I did it wrong and now I've got to do it all again. That was so familiar to me from the lab. Like, <laughs> I, was, I just felt so sad for you. I can really feel the frustration. <laughs> it's when you're on the clock as well. You're just like, I just, want, it, I just want it to be done now. <laughs> it just kind of shows how organic it is when we test things. It's, I think people like to think that because we're wearing lab coats and have nitrile gloves, it's all super precision all the time. But actually, it's really organic trying to learn a new 
learn something about a new material that you're using and it, it can be messy and it can be embarrassing and it can be there's all sorts of wrong and and eventually you either get there or you decide that it's not for you and, and I'm really glad that you stuck with it and that you also um, took us through that process thank you the key to being able to test something so sort of freely um, in a way that is also actually manageable for people who aren't who are working essentially on the clock because a lot of the time we use the same materials as we've always used because we don't have time to try anything else but the 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 thing that I found really important there is that I trusted each of the materials that I was using I knew that the silk repeline was stable I knew that the beaver was stable I knew that the lasco adhesive was stable and I'd heard really good things um and sort of had the kind of community go ahead to try out the serious color system Mm -hmm. so I knew that you know I could try it out and at least it wasn't going to kind of rot off the banner. <laughs> yeah, I, I do like trying new things. But also, I mean, aside from the fact that it can be expensive to try new things when it's like mm. not sure if it's going to work out. But sometimes the trade off is that it might be the perfect solution to the problem that you're having. <laughs> um, so when you approach something like this and you're not sure of what the right material is to use, do you just test it on a tiny, tiny, unimportant corner? Or how do you make the leap to applying what you think is the best solution to the piece? That is a great question. You test the different elements of a, of a treatment that you were doing. So if you were using um, a water-based adhesive, for example, you would do a um, solubility test on the paint, see if there was anything that if, if the paint mobilized in water, you can take tiny samples of, for example, flaking paint or a fraying something mm, or other. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying. I'm so stuck on textiles. I, I was going to say, like, in terms of uh, practicality, yeah, we do spot testing. You know, that's definitely yeah. a thing mm. where we find like an inconspicuous spot where we can try something. You know, even if you've done the same sort of treatment a million times, there might be something different about this one object. So you don't want to risk yeah. completely dissolving something or doing something silly by by not testing exactly. that place first. And and like like Chloe said, sometimes you know something's come off an object that's like a flake or you know just just a little fragment that you can test something on the in you know especially if sometimes some objects have no inconspicuous spots, you know, you're going to look at all of it. Mm. And so, some things are so tiny that you've got no choice but to try it on, on like a, a, su- a substantial piece. But yes, we do totally do spot testing. And something I'm also in favor of when it comes to getting to know new materials that you're using is uh, mock-ups. And they're not ideal because you're never going to replicate the object exactly. But uh, it, I especially favor this, you know, as, when we were students, that sometimes you can replicate how an object is structured for example you know like put, putting gesso and paint layers on a piece of wood and then seeing how you can best consolidate it with or like how much staining occurs with different adhesives that sort of thing or oh, uh, yeah. different solvents that sort of thing it teaches you so much about how the materials work how they react how they interact and it's so so valuable i'm a huge fan of doing little mock-ups like that if mm. you can Again, they're not perfect because they're not going to be a thousand years old. You're going to have made them <laughs> yesterday. Uh, so they're not going to be perfect, but it's still going to teach you something that prepares you before you put it on the actual object. Other people's research, hugely beneficial. And similarly, if, if you're doing like a windowsill experiment and in like even if you think it's not interesting or, or it's not worthwhile, write a blog about it, anything, tweet about it, do a Twitter Definitely. paper. Yeah. Uh, the, the amount of we're all better for sharing this sort of information because someone out there is desperate for a solution to a problem that you've probably had. I couldn't agree more. In the sciences, it's a real bugbear of mine that people will only publish their positive results. Um, oh, yes, and they right. Never, they never publish um, experiments that didn't work um, or yes. things that didn't react. And so the only result of that is that, you know, a hundred other scientists are going to repeat that failed experiment because they also thought it might work and it didn't. And then they're not going to tell anyone about it because they're a bit embarrassed. Um, <laughs> it just wastes everyone's time. Whereas yeah. if we were more open about admitting, um, oh, yeah, this didn't work. That's quite interesting, actually. Why didn't that work? Um, then we might all be able to get on with doing stuff a bit quicker. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> 
Dear Jane, my name is Eleanor Smith and what I want to know is how important is artistic ability for conservation? In particular, paper and book conservation. I've got great hand skills but can't draw or paint very well at all. Is being asked to reteach something I should be worried about? Dear Eleanor, thank you for your question. I don't know if this is going to be heresy, but I think you can probably manage without an artistic ability per se. As long as you've got your great hand skills and you're able to do some analytical work with your paint colours, I think you should be all right. It does always depend with any in-painting or retouching how you're going to be asked to repaint or, 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 or fill. Now, in art conservation, I think there would be no question you would have to be able to not only demonstrate artistic ability, but an ability to, to flex that through different styles and techniques in order to make appropriate retouches. But for book and paper, I think that most of the time you are going to be making what you might call a tonal fill, a fill that is uh, a gentle colour or a gentle version of the um, book co- um, or paper colour. You might be extending a line or some gilding. But in even those cases, this is a question of having steady hands and just sort of extending your hand skills. It's not necessarily an artistic um, expression that you'll be looking at. What I do think you need to do is understand colour. And I can only recommend that you study the colour wheel. You understand the way colour works together. Because when you are doing a retouch, if you're trying to take down perhaps the whiteness of a tissue infill, you do need to work out how to make the colour that you're looking for. And what I would say is you should always really be able to get there in about three pigments. So practice off your original object. Practice, if you're doing a fill with Japanese tissue, for example, practice on a spare piece over and over again. Once you're at sort of four or five pigments, I would suggest that you stop and start again. Use the colour theory. In particular, I think when using paints, work out how to sort of subtract a colour, look at how you take away the colour in the same way that you sometimes use green makeup to take away the redness of skin. That's important, I think, in, in, in colour matching because it just helps you sort of knock back or tone down an element of a, of a fill that you're not enjoying. There are other forms of fill, of course, you could be going crazy. Um, I'm a, a, aware of one of my colleagues is very into hot pink fills, but largely that's not very common in conservation. So I think take your time, do a lot of practice, read the colour theory, make sure that you get a good set of brushes so that if you're trying to do a wash, you've got a really appropriate brush. Start very thin on your colour because you don't, you can't take away painted colour once you've added it. And just practice. And I, I think that you can learn that. I really do. I don't think you need to be an artistic person to learn how to do that. I think as long as the hand skills, as long as you've got the brush manipulation that, uh, that I think come with hand skills. I hope that answers it. Good luck. Over and out. If you're enjoying the C word and would like to support our work, then please consider becoming one of our patrons. For as little as $1 per month, you can help us keep our episodes online and more of them coming. Patreon helps us meet our regular costs for the show, and also to plan ahead so we know roughly how much of a monthly budget we've got. That's super helpful when you're trying to do something special like buy a better microphone or save up to go to a special event. Your support also helps keep us free of advertisement. In return, our supporters get access to our archive of extended episodes, which you can only access on our Patreon page. Yeah, for that $1 a month, you get a little extra audio enjoyment. We've crunched the numbers, and it's about 10% extra content on a regular basis. Well, it's not bad for less than a cup of coffee, eh? If supporting us sounds like something you'd like to do, then head over to patreon.com slash the C word and join our bunch of absolute champions. And a warm welcome to our latest patron, Nikki. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening. We're The Seaward, and you've been listening to Anna Poshiski, Chloe Rumsey, and me, Jenna Mathiason. Join us next time for an episode about something... It'll be a surprise. <laughs> at the meantime, you can visit our website at theseaward.show, tweet us at the Seaward Podcast, or simply email us on theseawardpodcast at gmail.com. Enjoy and outro music is Spring by Didi Music, used under Creative Commons Attributions License. Additional music and sound effects by Callum Robertson. This has been a Wooden Dice production.